Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction and what you had for breakfast this morning. I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction, and my most recent book, if you're interested in archaeology, is called Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. It is so good. <laughs> I'm Charlie Jean Anders. I'm a science fiction writer, and I think about science a lot. And I'm also the author of a young adult trilogy. The first book, Victories Greater Than Death. Death is out uh, in paperback now, and the sequel, Dreams Bigger Than Heartbreak, comes out April 5th. And you should buy both of them and read them before you eat them. So, Charlie Jane, how many times a day would you say that you talk to your cat? It's really hard for me to put a number to that because I feel like I never stop talking to Marcus Aurelius. We pretty much just like have a never-ending monologue. I mean, it's it's a dialogue, but I pretty much just like talk to him in a constant stream and he kind of talks back. <laughs> I talk to my cat too. And I talk to the birds who visit the bird feeder outside and the squirrels and the raccoons when I see them on the streets. I talk to dogs. Mm. Hopefully their humans aren't too disturbed when I say hello to their dogs. And, you know, I feel like they're picking up on some of my meaning For or at sure. least the tone. The main thing is I don't want to be rude just in case they understand everything. And this awkward feeling has motivated a lot of speculative fiction where there are tons of talking animals. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they talk through magic. Sometimes a scientist has given them some kind of brain implant or a drug that lets them use human language. And in this episode, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about talking to non-human animals. Why do we have this recurrent fantasy about communicating with other creatures? And what happens when we try to make it a reality? Later in the episode, we'll be joined by science journalist and podcaster Ariel Duem-Ross, who is going to tell us about their recent reporting on one of the most infamous scientific studies of human-animal communication, the quest to teach apes sign language. All that is coming up. Also, on our audio extra next week for people who give us money through Patreon, we'll be talking about writing animal characters, why it can be great, and what the pitfalls are. And by the way... Did you know that this podcast is entirely independent of corporate media because it's funded by you, our listeners, through Yay. Patreon? Yeah, that yeah. is right. And, you know, if you become a Patreon, you are making this podcast happen. Plus, you get audio extras with every episode. You also get an interrocitor for communicating with the aliens from this island Earth. Plus, you get access to our Discord server where Charlie Jane and I hang out, like, all the time. We're just in there constantly. We were just in there having a debate about the new Taika Waititi show. Right. Uh, it's called Our Flag Means Death. And uh, if you want to know what Charlie thought and what I thought, you got you to gotta join up. Hang out on the Discord. So anything you give through Patreon, it goes right back into making our opinions even more correct. You can find us at patreon.com slash our opinions are correct. So obviously, we've been telling stories about talking to animals and having animals talk to, uh, back to us, you know, for for as long as we've had language, probably. The, the, it, goes, it goes back to some of the earliest folklore and fables. 
there are many stories in many cultures about communicating with animals in different ways. But how specifically does this turn up in science fiction and fantasy stories? And, and what are the main tropes that we tend to see? So let's start by talking about stories where humans and non-human animals start talking to each other, uh, usually for the first time. So there's a couple ways that that happens. So there's the idea that is sometimes called uplift, which means taking non-human animals and making them kind of like people. So you get a character like Rocket Raccoon, uh, who is, you know, the gun-toting cyber raccoon from Guardians of the Galaxy. Love Rocket Raccoon. Or you get who love that character too. Or you get something like the apes in Planet of the Apes, um, who in both versions of the story have been uplifted, although for for different reasons. Um, they've been given this kind of – in the new Planet of the Apes, they've been given this kind of drug. Um, and in the previous one, I don't actually remember how they uplift them, but uh, apes are uplifted in order to perform labor after um, – Oh, man. After – the weird thing is – so in the original series of movies – the apes um, replace dogs and cats because there's a plague that oh, kills yeah. all the dogs and cats. Oh, my God. And humans uplift um, apes to replace them. But then it's really not replacing pets if you're uplifting them into humans. Anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a problem in it's history. It's a whole thing. But the point is that um, these are both stories about kind of interfering with these um, non-human animals. Right, by, by giving them, them uplifting and turning yeah. them into yeah. Then there's the other version of this story, which is I call the Dr. Doolittle version of the story, which is where there's somebody who suddenly starts understanding things that animals have been saying all along, but we just couldn't understand them. So Dr. Doolittle in the classic stories from the 1920s, and then there's been tons of remakes um, through film. Um, my favorites are the ones that have Eddie Murphy um, that start in the late 90s. And he's just a doctor who suddenly starts understanding animal language. And so those are kind of the two poles I see. One is uplifting, turning the animals into more people more like us. The other is people learning to understand animals for themselves. Which is interesting because it feels like those are two very different uh, visions of what animals are like. Like in one version, animals are basically like incapable of communication, incapable of, of thought really, yeah. like as we understand it, until we do something to them. And then the other, it's like, nope, they were always capable of thought. They were always capable of communicating. It's just that we, through our own limitations, were unable to understand them. So it's really – it's two very different visions and – you know, of course, there's a problem with the uplift story. There's a central problem, which is that the animals cannot consent mm -hmm. to be uplifted. They, You can only ask them for consent once you've already put the brain implants in and given them human equivalent intelligence and communication abilities, by which time it's kind of too late for them to say, no, I didn't want that. No. Yeah. So it's, it's like coercive. this weird paradox of, of like, yeah, it's, it's the weird paradox of uplifting. Yeah. And I think that that goes to the heart of what I find interesting about these stories, which is that they're very allegorical. Yes. Um, I feel like talking animal stories make us think about fables, and mm -hmm. that makes it a little bit more um, likely that we're going to turn them into allegories or read them as allegories, and that both of these stories, the uplift-type story or the do-little-type story, are ultimately about what our obligations are to the environment. How should we treat non-human animals and everything else that's alive around us? You know, uplift stories are one approach, which is to make non-human animals and basically make them into humans with fur. Just like turn everything into a human. 
um, hack their brains until they're people. Um, and like you were saying, it's not consensual and it's often really violent in these stories. Then there's the Doolittle model, which is much more about trying to just understand the non-humans on their own terms, just like meeting them where they are. I mentioned earlier I love the Eddie Murphy Doolittle movies. Um, and, you know, in his version of the story, this means that, you know, at one point he has to help a rat who's having what he thinks might be a heart attack. Oh, Doc, Doc! Help me. You gotta help me. He's dead. He's laying there dead. You gotta help me. Oh! He's not dead. Oh, oh no, no, don't go, buddy, old pal, friend of mine. You gotta help him. Oh, really? Why is that? Why? Because, because... Oh. Because you're the man. You're the man. Oh, I'm the man now. I thought I was a guy the other day that you wanted to get bubonic. I'm going thirsty like now. I was just kidding. You and I were ripping, Dr. Serious. Come on. <laughs> Goodbye, world. I smell flowers. I'm begging you. Don't let him die. Don't let my body go. That clip is kind of intense. It's kind of heartbreaking. I feel bad for that poor rat guy. Well, don't feel too bad because by the end of the scene, it turns out that the rat just has gas and it ends up farting in Eddie Murphy's face. I mean, <laughs> relatable. And like, you know. Which we've all been there. Um, but not not before he actually gives mouth-to-mouth resuscitation to the rat. So we we see that he's, you know, he's he's meeting the rats where they are. And, you know, Doolittle stories in general, which is stories where humans try to understand animals, they're almost like first contact stories where we have our first meeting with whatever it is, Vulcans or fairies or the under people. We have to listen to them and help them out. Um, do you remember that show Sequest from the 1990s, sort of like Star Trek in an undersea vessel? Yeah, I think they actually eventually found the sea, right? Y- yes, they quested for the sea and they <laughs> eventually found, found the it. sea. Yes, thank you, Charlie Jane. <laughs> um, so anyway, in that show, which like, Everybody, go back and watch this show. Like, if you need something to fill your heart with love, like Sequest. So one of the crew of Sequest is a dolphin named Darwin. And there's this tech whiz kid on the crew who's invented a translator so that the dolphin can work with them and talk to them. Um, and we kind it's kind of like a universal translator. And so it's sort of the tech version of the Doolittle story. And in the first episode of the show, which I recently rewatched, we learned that Darwin's people, um, his pod of dolphins, they already have a culture. They have their own form of medicine. Darwin gets sick and he has to go visit his family so they can give him dolphin medicine. So it's not at all like Darwin has been uplifted. It's just dolphins were already as sophisticated as humans, but we just we couldn't understand them. So you mentioned something called the under people a while ago. Um, are those like mole people? What's what's the deal with the under people? <laughs> so the under people are um, an uplifted group of uh, non-human animals from the stories by Cordwainer Smith. Oh. So Cordwainer Smith was a science fiction writer whose stories really became popular in kind of the 50s and early 60s. And he's currently an obsession of mine because I'm I'm writing about him for – Uh, a book, and I visited uh, an archive at Stanford that has all of his papers. So I kind of went through a bunch of his stuff, and he he led two lives. So he worked as a day job as a PSYOP expert for the Army. He literally wrote a book called Psychological Warfare that was used for decades. Um, And he was an expert in um, Southeast Asia and China. And then he wrote this arc of stories under his 
science fiction pseudonym, Cordwainer Smith, that are clustered around a future global power called Nordstralia, which is North Australia, which is a kind of a hybrid of European and Asian powers. And they create this group called the Underpeople, who are uplifted animals. They're kind of hybrid human-animal. It's very surreal. They live um, underneath this very beautiful futuristic city where human beings and robots are kind of like they're leading these incredible like I guess kind of utopian lives. You know, they live for a really long time. They have great medicine. But the under people live in squalor, basically under highways. Um, and they have no rights. They just are laborers. They do literally like cleaning the sewers. And they're clearly supposed to be some kind of racial group that's been marginalized or maybe um, a political underclass. And I think because Cordwainer Smith in his army job uh, was exposed to so many places in Southeast Asia where there were separatist movements and revolutions happening, he'd seen a lot of um, the horrors of colonialism and post-colonialism. And he was very opposed to uh, a lot of the interventions that were happening and wanted to write about that and kind of chose this as an allegory. Huh. So it's really a kind of political allegory about imperialism. Yeah, and we we talked in our one of our previous episodes with Maggie Takuda Hall about how a lot of these stories about animals and, you know, kind of uplifted animals or speaking animals kind of ultimately become allegories about race or, you know, class, but mostly race. Specifically, they're about creating a class of slave laborers. And another really important story in this subgenre, um, the kind of uplift subgenre, is The Island of Dr. Moreau, which was originally an H.G. Wells novel from 1896. And it's been told and retold for over a century now in many different media. And in the original story, it's about an English doctor who's on a South Pacific island, and he is uplifting animals through this bizarre kind of chemical process, and he's trying to teach them to be civilized. So it's clearly about colonialism. It's about mixed-race people as well as mixed cultures created by 19th century colonies. And actually, I'm right now I'm reading Silvia Moreno-Garcia's uh, forthcoming novel, The Daughter of Dr. Moreau. It's really spectacular. It's another retelling of the story. She sets it in late 19th century Yucatan. And in her novel, it's very explicit that Moreau is making these hybrids because the European colonists aren't happy with the way their Mayan laborers keep rebelling and keep demanding more rights. And so each of these stories, I think— uh, comes back to this question of, again, how do we treat nature? How do we treat each other? Um, and basically asking, why do we keep trying to invent slaves? Yeah, and it's axiomatic, I guess, that, you know, whenever you have a, a story about the other, you know, it's always about us. It's always about humans. It's always about who we are as people. And we're kind of creating this other in a way to, it, as a way to talk about ourselves. And, you know, one of my favorite stories about uplifted animals is the comic book We Three by Grant Morrison. Love and, that and, so much. And Ed Al. And, like, you know, the government turns a dog, a cat, and a rabbit into, like, these cyborg war machines that can talk. Talk about a heartbreaking story. It's incredible like upsetting. And, you know, this is one of those rare examples where the uplifted animals do not talk like just like the way we would expect humans to talk. Instead, you know, the cat 
just keep saying stink boss, stink boss. And that's it's what like, they call the humans are stink boss, which you know <laughs> that's what your cat is calling you. <laughs> and, you know, it's actually more upsetting and more kind of, you know, like, oh, my God, because you know that's what your cat would say if, he, if, if they could talk. They'd be like, stink boss. You know, and that's that's what that's how animals would talk. It's not just like, hello, excuse me, I have now been uplifted. It's like they talk, they talk, they kind of express what animals are always expressing, which is, you know, not understanding these weird ass humans. Yeah. And also kind of insulting them and, mm-hmm. and not wanting to obey them, um, which, again, re- the sort of stink boss thing reminds me of Rocket Raccoon, yeah. who has been uplifted to be a super soldier and is incredibly disobedient. Not at all what you would want mm-hmm. out of your super soldier. And this is another component of these underpeople and hybrid stories is that they always end with disobedience. The hybrids rise up. And that gives these stories a lot in common with robot uprising stories. Yes. Um, and what's interesting for me is that in the Cordwainer Smith stories about the underpeople that I was describing earlier, the animal uprising is portrayed as a search for justice. And the result is a slightly more democratic system. Like once the animals have risen up with the help of some great animal leaders, Dijon and Samel, actually Dijon and Kamel, uh, who are two uh, great hybrids. One is a dog woman and one is a cat woman. And they usher in a new, better era for humanity. And in Moreau stories or Moreau-style stories, the results are always bloody and horrific. The animals revolt and they destroy everything. Yeah, and it's interesting that we start getting these like animal uplifting, like a ton of these animal uplifting stories around the same time that we start getting robot stories, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned. And like the robot stories are pretty much from the beginning about uprisings and about worker revolts. And it's like something about something in the water, something about like the rise of like modern industrial capitalism is making people think about this. But what's the difference between doing a robot story and a story about animal hybrids? Why is it more about animal abuse when it's animal hybrids? So I think actually that they come from the same place. I think that the robot uprising and the animal uprising are both, as we were just discussing, they're coming out of the late 19th century when we're starting to see really major um, worker revolutions Mm -hmm. and organizing. And so this is a way of thinking about how are we treating the working class. And one of my favorite versions of Island of Dr. Moreau is a 1932 movie called The Island of Lost Souls, which is a huge cult classic. And Bella Lugosi plays the leader of the hybrids. And he starts the revolution against the incredibly creepy doctor. And for the whole movie, we see him lashing the hybrids with a bullwhip. He's vivisecting them in this place that the hybrids call the House of Pain. Um, he's clearly a plantation owner or some kind of um, you know, overseer on the plantation. And at the end, right before the hybrids rise up and basically just rip Moreau apart, Lugosi gives this amazing speech where he yells at Moreau that he hasn't made them men. He's made them part men, part beast, and then he says, you made us things. You made us things! Not men! Not beasts! Fire! 
okay, that kind of answers my question because this feels like even more dehumanizing in a way than, than a story about robots. Yeah, and it's really hard to overstate how influential this movie was and the remix of Island of Dr. Moreau. It even inspired a classic new wave song by Oingo Boingo in the 1980s. And that was Danny Wolfman. I mean, Danny Elfman. Um, (laughs) So, you know, we talked about fables earlier, and obviously this is the roots of a lot of our stories about talking to animals. So but let's talk a little bit about modern stories where there are animals who just kind of talk to each other, like um, the amazing Disney movie Zootopia or the show Arnold about an aardvark and his friends or, you know, George Orwell's Animal Farm. Yes. So I call those anthropomorphization stories. Basically, they are full-on allegories where animals stand in for people. And probably the earliest of the modern versions come from Beatrix Potter, who created Peter Rabbit and mm. many, many other um, characters who I grew up loving, like Hunka Munka the mouse, um, who is just super badass. And also mm. there's stuff like Watership Down, also about also a British novel about tragic rabbits, um, much more tragic than Peter, obviously. And right now, actually, in the United States, the comic book Mouse by Art Spiegelman is making a comeback because people are trying to ban it from schools because they think that it's part of critical race studies. And Mouse is a perfect example of these anthropomorphization stories. It's an allegory about Nazi Germany where the Nazis are cats and the Jews are mice. Um, Incidentally, the Americans are dogs and there's a couple of other groups thrown in there. Right. Yeah, and I guess they tried to claim they were banning mouse because of one brief moment of nudity, but it's so clear that the real reason is because it's such a powerful story. And it's powerful in part because of the way it uses animal characters as a way to talk about real-life injustice and atrocities. And for some reason, using animals is just a uniquely potent way to do an allegory. And can, can you talk more about that? Yeah, one of the reasons we tell speculative stories is that they provide a kind of a safe space. You know, it's easier to think about political issues in the context of a story about like a mad doctor or a cat woman spy. But because <laughs> it just doesn't feel like we're talking about ourselves. So we can like relax a little and consider a new perspective. And yet it really seems like when we have a talking animal allegory like Mouse, I don't think people do feel more comfortable. I I don't think it feels safe. I think that's why people want to ban mouse. It's almost like the talking animal story is too on the nose. It's too obviously about us. And therefore, we take it personally. Plus, we just emotionally connect to these animals in a way that's just like it's so pure, I feel like. It's really pure, and it's really hard to deny the allegory. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't give us that cushion that, say, Island of Dr. Moreau does, mm. where there's humans and animals. When it's all animals, suddenly it's clear they're us. So coming up after the break, we are going to talk to Ariel Duem ross who has been researching and reporting on what happened when scientists in real life have tried to teach animals to communicate like people. Do you ever look up at the night sky and wonder about your place in the universe? Then you just might want to join. 
the Planetary Society. I did. I joined the Planetary Society. I love them. The Planetary Society is a global space exploration nonprofit that was co-founded by Carl Sagan and now is led by Bill Nye. And their weekly podcast, which is awesome, is called Planetary Radio, and it takes you to the outer reaches of the solar system and beyond. Host Matt Kaplan visits with scientists, mission leaders, astronauts, and writers who provide their unique and exciting perspectives on the exploration of our universe. On the first Friday of every month, Matt and the Planetary Society's chief advocate, Casey Dreyer, dive deep into the policy and politics of how NASA operates and how exploration decisions are made in the U.S. Capitol. Space is vast. There's a lot of exploring to do. Subscribe to Planetary Radio today, wherever you get your podcasts. You won't regret it. You really won't. They are super awesome. Now we are very excited to be joined by Ariel Duem-Ross, host of the Vice podcast called A Show About Animals. They are also the host of Vice News Reports. Welcome, Ariel. Thank you so much for having me. This is this is fantastic. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's such an awesome, so so lovely talking to you. I was a huge fan of a show about animals, which just wrapped up in January. And you focused on the world-famous experiments with teaching two apes sign language during the 1970s. So these were Coco the gorilla and Nim Chimsky, who was a chimp. And those were fantastic names. So tell us a little bit about their two different stories and why these experiments were so important. Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, thank you so much for listening. Truly, like, I had such a blast working on the first season of this show. It was so good. It was like, it was like (laughs) drama. It was amazing. It was high drama. Honestly, it felt, it's so different from other projects that I've worked on. And there was so much human drama and animal drama in in that season. So it it was a total blast. Very, very interesting. And, you know, there's science there, too. So Mm -hmm. Um, Basically, it's the story of the ape language research studies of the 1970s. Um, There have been a number of studies that have attempted to uh, teach sign language or some kind of human language to great apes. But arguably, I think the most famous ones are Coco the Gorilla and Nim Chimsky. Coco the Gorilla... You might know Coco, right? Mm-hmm. Coco was really famous uh, through a book called Coco and Her Kitten. Lots of kids grew up watching her on uh, Mr. Rogers and reading Rainbow. Yeah. She's this famous gorilla. And then there was also Nim Chimsky. And so basically one of the very first studies was Coco. Mm-hmm. And Coco was uh, taught a, a form of sign language early on. Uh, in her life, starting in 1972, she was born in 1971, uh, by a person named Penny Patterson, uh, who was a psychologist, um, a grad student at Stanford University, and who wanted to see, you know, is it possible to teach an animal a human language? And does that then force us to rethink the role of humans in the world and, and the way that we conceptualize humanity, right? Like, does do we have to rethink who we are as a, if we have a shared language. Because at the time, language was viewed as sort of one of this final frontier differentiating us from other animals. 
Um, you know, Jane Goodall mm-hmm. had already demonstrated that uh, animals, chimps specifically, could use tools. Um, we were we were learning that actually, like other animals, were um, much closer to us than than we previously thought. And so, language was viewed as one of those final frontiers. Penny Patterson then, you know, decides that she wants to to see if if it's possible to teach a human language to a, to a gorilla. Mm-hmm. And um, the, you know, the reason why they chose sign language is because they, they had previously been studies trying to teach spoken language to, to great apes, and those experiments had failed. The, their vocal cords can't do it, apparently. It's, it, the, the way their lips are shaped, it's just not physically possible. And so sign language seemed like a good alternative. Now, a few years after that... In the early 1970s, another scientist, this time in New York City, a man named Herbert Terrace, decides that he's going to launch his own study. He thinks he can do a better version of this than Penny Patterson did and and previous scientists have done. And he uses a chimp. Uh, This chimp is named Nimchimpsky. It was sort of a a dig at Noam Chomsky. And that 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 was the the deal with the name. I it, I can <laughs> d- d- you know explain B. F. Skinner versus Noam Chomsky if you guys want me to. But um. <laughs> we'll let, we'll let listeners uh, Google that one. Okay. They can Google it. <laughs> Find out all and about Noam Chomsky's theories of language acquisition. I'm just guessing B. F. Skinner tried to put Noam Chomsky in some kind of box. I don't know. We'll find <laughs> right, out. Right, we'll, is we'll something Google. like that. Something like that. There's usually some kind of some a thing in a box with B.F. Skinner. Um, <laughs> There's always a box. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so Herbert Terrace decides to do this this sort of competing study, and he just thinks he can do a better version of it, right? He's not trying to disprove anything. He just thinks that he can be more rigorous than anybody has been before. Mm-hmm. And long story short, he ends up publishing this study where not only he says that it's impossible, he was unable to teach actual language to Nimchimsky, um, but he says that everybody else is also screwing up and that this field should seriously rethink what they're doing. And it's just this bomb in the scientific world that he just like basically throws and like kind of runs away afterwards because he doesn't keep working on this stuff mm-hmm. after this. You know, he publishes a book where um, he explains you know, his theories as to why it didn't work. And then he just kind of walks away. And he's still a very well-known, very well-regarded scientist at, at Columbia. But he just he just drops this bomb and then everybody kind of loses their funding and uh, people kind of are forced to walk away from their studies. But Penny Patterson keeps on working with Coco the Gorilla for years and years and years, up right up until Coco the Gorilla's death in 2018. And what are some of the signs that Penny teaches to Coco? Like, what what kinds of conversations could they have using sign language? I mean, honestly, if you ask Penny, she'll say that they talked about every single thing and that there <laughs> were no limitations. Uh-huh. Um, I did, in fact, talk to Penny, and it seemed like Penny thought that, you know, Coco was able to understand really complicated concepts like um, like the word curious even early on, right? Mm-hmm. The concept of curiosity was something that Coco could understand, according to Penny Patterson. And, you know, there there are these stories, these famous stories about how, like, Coco was signing the word for bird and they were indoors and there were no birds. So why would she be signing bird? And it was it was um, she was modifying the sign and it was like kind of like the word bird, but not really. 
And then finally Penny spots a fly in the corner of the room and is like, oh, she's making these associations like a fly is like a bird. And she was like, you know, evolving and and trying to um, build upon the language that she already possessed. Right. So those are the kinds of things that in Penny's mind demonstrate that Coco really did have a grasp of a human language and was then able to be creative. And that was a big deal for her. Mm-hmm. And so, like, th- there are these stories about how, how Coco would communicate. And um, they become sort of mythical, like, in, in, their own, in their own, like, specific way. Yeah, I mean, I remember when Coco the gorilla died. It was a huge thing, you know, on the internet yeah. and media. People were like freaking out because she was this beloved figure, and we'd all seen her on TV growing up. And you know, she had been hanging out with like Big Bird and stuff, I guess. And um, yeah. Yeah. I guess you know, is there is there an argument to be made, or you know, have people made an argument that like having this experiment becomes such a media kind of driven frenzy and turning this gorilla into a celebrity. Does that kind of taint the research or does it make it harder to kind of be, you know, have controlled yeah. conditions in the in the experiment or, or anything like that? You know, it could have happened that way, but actually what, and one could, we can talk about that for sure. But I think that actually, if you, if you look at the record, the reason why Coco became such a celebrity was because the science was the scientific world was leaving Penny and Coco behind. Uh Um, And so they then had to pivot to a different audience, an audience that would be willing to help sustain uh, Penny's work with Coco and and help, you know, frankly, give donations, right? So Penny sort of pivots to children. And that is where you start seeing... Coco and her kitten, that famous book that that talks because Coco was friends with some kittens and, and arguably did did really enjoy being around cats. Um, Relatable. And there was this famous <laughs> right. I mean, don't we all? <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, so there's this book that was written about her relationship with a specific kitten named All Ball. Um, and then all these TV appearances happen. You know, one of the most famous videos of Coco is her spending time with Robin Williams and Robin Williams talking about it as almost like a spiritual experience. But then, you know, some things happen that that make it feel like Penny lost sight of the science, like wasn't really working very hard on sign language with Coco after a while. And then also... Whether it was her or other members of her team, they start capitalizing on this uh, attention that Coco is receiving in ways that feel honestly not good. So I was told by somebody who used to work at the Gorilla Foundation that um, when Robin Williams died, that was um, an opportunity for them to get donations. And so they they put out this picture of Coco mourning Robin Williams and, and saying how how sad she was, how devastated she was. Um, and the picture was actually just a picture of uh, the way that Coco sat every night. Um, you know, she would sit with her lip drooping and her head bowed. Um, and that's just, you know, when she was tired, that's, that's how she sat. Mm-hmm. And uh, that picture was put out as a way to demonstrate Coco's chagrin. <laughs> they started pushing things really, really hard towards the end in ways that that don't feel great, unfortunately. I wanted to go back to to talking about um, the Coco versus Nim Chimsky debates um, because I thought that was yeah. such an interesting um, piece of your reporting. So there was there was this huge um, kind of uh, professional 
showdown between the two different groups. There was Herbert Terrace, yeah. who headed the NIM project. Um, and he, I feel like he basically accused Penny Patterson, who worked with Coco, of like confirmation bias and poor research. Yeah. Um, but I really felt like, as I was listening to your work, that that the accusations felt like they masked something else. Like maybe it was just this <laughs> idea that apes just are inferior, and so we can't ever imagine a non-human animal, you know, being as awesome as us with language. Or maybe. It's because old Herbert Terrace didn't like the idea of women doing cutting-edge research. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, what do you think were, like, kind of the underlying issues that motivated this debate beyond the kind of scientific concerns? Yeah, I really think you picked up on something important there. Um, that that was the undertone of, of a lot of the way that Herbert Terrace talked about Penny Patterson. Because, you know, we can definitely debate the merits of, of Penny Patterson's approach, but I think that Herbert Terrace made a lot of assumptions in his takedown that maybe he would have come to the same conclusions if he had had more information, but it just really seemed like he he jumped to a bunch of conclusions without having as much information as one might hope. And I, you know, in the way, because I spoke to Herbert Terrace as well, um, and then the way, you know, that he talked about Penny Patterson, he talked about Penny's work as a hobby he used that word with me once. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember thinking, okay, but like, and this was pointed out to me by by somebody else as well, um, Rose Evelith, a, a mutual friend of ours, that Herbert Terrace was literally doing the same thing Penny was. And so if if it was a hobby for Penny, then it's a hobby for you too, bro, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I mean, like, yeah. The thing that I thought was so insane was like, Herbert Terrace basically just like offloaded all care of Nim Chimsky onto a female colleague of his. And he was just like, here, yeah. you take care of it. And yeah, so yeah. he wasn't even doing the same work. You know, he Man. was. Yeah. And if we want to talk about rigor, you know, the, the some of the things in, in the way that Herbert Terrace set up his own experiment, it really seems like Nim was set up to fail in many ways. Mm-hmm. Right. Um they had a, uh, a lot of different people coming in and out of Nimchimsky's life, you know, uh, teaching him sign language. Um, and by the way, I want to be really clear because I, I, I probably would come to this conclusion anyways, but I'm using the term sign language specifically because I don't I'm making a distinction between sign language and American sign language mm-hmm. um, because a lot of the people who were teaching both Coco and Nim were not fluent at all in American Sign Language, did not grow up speaking the language, did not grow up signing, and were very much like beginners as well. And so the consistency in the signs and their ability to interpret and understand what these animals are signing and even just like agree on what is going on in any given situation and, and quote-unquote conversation with these animals, um, I think is really questionable. Yeah, it sounded like they were just making up signs sometimes. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And and Coco had wow. her own signs for certain things, and Nim had his own signs for certain things. Um, it, if you had somebody who was fluent in ASL try and sign with these animals— They'd only pick up on like maybe half of what was being said. And it was it was always very, very simple things. These animals were largely communicating the stuff that we know for sure that they were talking about was like, I want that banana. Give me that blanket. 
um, they're all requests. They're not exchanges where you're having, you know, tell me about your day or how are you doing? Like, <laughs> the, the, or actually, you know, it, it maybe how are you doing was a thing, but it was not... Um, it's it's honestly <laughs> it's so hard to talk about this because even the like how are you doing conversation there is an argument to be made that Coco knew what to answer to that question in order to get a treat. Right. Yeah. To what extent is it cueing is it like when my dog knows to sit when I make a certain hand gesture because I do use gestures with my dog versus you know, does she understand the concept of sitting in a chair? And like, would she know that that when I'm sitting in a chair, it's the same thing that what she's doing? Like, you know, it, it's complicated, right? And that is a question where there is a limit to our ability to to understand, it, specifically in the way that these studies were set up in in the seventies. Like, it is. I there are a lot of un, unanswered questions here. One of my favorite. Um pieces of the story was I think both Coco and Nim really liked to be tickled and that was one of the signs that they had was tickle me or was Aww. that just yeah, tickle chase no what both of them loved being tickled absolutely and they they both had different versions Coco really loved being like a tickle chase game was like a big thing for her she really loved Aww. it yeah so I like that. I like that they both, you know, independently were like, okay, we definitely just need a sign for tickling. <laughs> it's like that. Yeah, is, it's very key. Bananas, yes, but tickling also. <laughs> so yeah. that's very yeah. relatable. No, totally. Yeah, and you know, there's also there are other issues with these studies, and and this is where my brain is going. Is you know they wanted to be touched, they wanted that social interaction, and and. Part of that is because they were ripped away from their families and their natural environment right. at a very young age, right? In many ways, one could argue that these studies were 100% inhumane. Nim was ripped away from his mother at, at two weeks old. Oh, wow. Um, and then given to a, a human, a woman named Stephanie Lafarge in Brooklyn, to raise Nim as a human child. And that comes with a whole bunch of issues, Right. So, it, yeah, there's a lot. there was a lot to discuss when it comes to these studies. It blows my mind that all this research was being done 50 years ago. And, like, you know, has anybody tried to teach a, a grade A sign language since the early 70s? Has it just not? Yeah, um, not really. Um, as, you know, Annalie sort of alluded to, the there was a big blow-up. There was a big conference called the Clever Hans Conference in 1980. And... Um, Herbert Terrace was there. Penny Patterson was not. But a bunch of people who were trying to do language studies with animals were. And the this, the conference was a fiasco. There was um, debunkers who were there accusing all these people of, of basically being idiots um, and, you know, having confirmation bias and, and all these things. And so a lot of the studies just stopped. The, the, the National Science Foundation stopped funding this work. And so... You know, it's a lot of these, some of these chimps, because the, there were a lot more chimps, um, not gorillas, not so much in the same way, but chimps who were taught sign language during that time who didn't become famous. And some of them are still alive. And so you can sign with chimps right now. And, and it is possible to, like, get them to do things with with signs um, and to, you know, have, have them make requests with signs. Like, some of them are, are you know, are currently living... Um, at a, a sanctuary in Louisiana um, that's really famous um, for caring for a lot of these animals that were used in scientific studies. But by and large, 
this work was sort of stopped. Um, what instead, there, there was a refocusing more towards understanding how animals communicate with each other or trying to communicate with animals using their own language. Um, dolphin research is a really good example of this, right? Trying to, to use dolphin song and clicks to get animals to do certain things or, or, or fulfill certain tasks. Um, but, you know, as far as human language goes, there, there was it kind of fell off. A little bit, but now there sort of seems to be, and the researcher who is working on this probably wouldn't love the way that I'm framing this, but there seems to be a resurgence of this kind of work, at least when it comes to, and some people might be aware of this, the the dog buttons. Oh yeah, the, on like TikTok and Instagram mm-hmm. and cat um, buttons. <laughs> right? Yes. Sorry, it, I, cats are absolutely trainable, by the way. So I'm, you know. Uh, I recently uh, pet sit some cats who who use a toilet, um, and that wow. was fascinating. Yeah, I follow um, yeah. <laughs> um, I follow someone on Instagram who's trained their cat to use the buttons, and I am always extremely skeptical <laughs> about it. But um, for for folks yeah. who haven't seen that, it's it's basically just um, you know a board that you can put down on the ground, and the cats can learn to push buttons, and each button means something different, like give me food or you know other well, stuff. Yeah. Go for a walk if it's yeah. a dog. Yeah, it's like walk, mom, dad, love, like love, uh, treats, uh, nap, a <laughs> love park. treats. Yeah, yeah, love, love treats, treats. Love um, treats. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's just that's me exactly pushing what, the buttons. <laughs> no, that's exactly what it sounds like. Um, but and there, there is a scientific research that is being conducted, and the scientist is his name is Federico Rosano, and he's at UC San Diego, and he is. Basically, he stumbled upon these people who were teaching their dogs to use buttons to request things and communicate with their owners. And uh, he started to, to actually try and conduct a study. So he's put cameras in some of these people's homes to detect whenever the dog even goes close to the buttons to see if it's not like a fluke, right? Mm-hmm. Like, is there actually a, a, a pattern? Does this actually make sense? And we don't know the results of that study yet. It has not been published yet. I am waiting with bated breath. I'm very excited about it. Um, but I, he's very clear in stating that this is not a language study. It's a cognitive um, It's a cognitive study, trying to look right. at their cognition. Yeah, right. to kind of avoid the taint of trying to do a cocoa right. type well, study. Yeah, I mean, honestly, language research, if you say I'm doing a language study with an animal— Scientists kind of like nobody does that. Like it's it's now because of Coco and Nimchimsky, it is viewed as being extremely tainted, um, and and that's that's interesting in and of itself. I think that's so interesting the distinction you were making between um, the studies like um, Nim and Coco and the button pushing, and also things like um, Alex the Gray Parrot, who kind of spoke English. Those kind of studies, which are all about, like, let's make animals speak English to us versus, like, a study where it's like, oh, what if we tried to learn the ways that animals are communicating? Um, I wonder yeah. which which one do you think is more likely to lead us in the right path? Do you think we're going to actually make some progress and communicate with animals? 
Yeah, I mean, I think we are communicating with animals, right? Like straight up, I think we we do communicate with animals. I'm definitely communicating with my dog when I'm I'm <laughs> she she does this thing where she'll look at a specific object really really hard, and then I I'm looking at what she's looking. I'm like, oh, this is what you want, right? Like I know Aww. how to read her gaze. Yeah, so she <laughs> wants me to move the ottoman in the sun patch. Fine, I'll move the ottoman in the sun patch. <laughs> she's very opinionated. Um, yeah. <laughs> but but. My conclusion was that I, I I feel like we are trying really, really hard to turn animals, at least the, what these studies were doing was was trying really, really hard to turn animals into humans, right? Yeah. To, to humanize mm-hmm. them, to teach them our way of doing things. And that is, honestly, I don't know if that's going to get us anywhere long term um, to, to, to think about it that way, because... You know, when I think about the way I keep talking about my dog because I'm obsessed with her. Um, but when I think about the way that my dog interacts with the world, we have some shared experiences to a certain extent. But she can hear things that I can't hear. She can smell things that I can't smell. She, um, you know, I, I think I read and somebody might want to fact check me. But I think I read that like a dog can smell like a drop of blood in a pool. Like that's the kind of analogies that we're talking about when we talk about their ability to smell things. And and that's also how how some people think that dogs can conceptualize time because you know if you if you're gone for an hour your smell dissipates over that amount of time and oh. when it's that's why they're panicking at, after an hour instead of panicking after half an hour and they always panic after an hour you know like those kinds of things um oh, poor dog and so if we were to have a shared language if if she suddenly started talking in english to me um I probably wouldn't understand what the heck she's talking about, right? Because we don't experience the world in the same way at all. Like maybe after a very, like, I don't know if we would ever actually get anywhere, right? She'd be like, well, this is so obvious, this smell. Like, can't you smell this thing? I'd be like, no, <laughs> right, I have exactly. no idea what you're yeah, talking about. It's like, hello, you know, like, let's follow this <laughs> smell to the place, you know? And yeah, it's like, it's a thing that... You know, the universal translator cannot deal with that, you know, <laughs> like on Star yeah. Trek. Like there's yeah. no universal translator for like pheromones and smells and which is kind right. of yeah. weird. It seems like that they should have added that by now. But no. <laughs> <laughs> and, I you mean, know, that's a really good question. Um, and then if I push the question a little bit further, if you'll permit me to just go yeah. here for one second. Um when I was working on a show about animals the first season, I was thinking a lot about um, Ursula Le Guin's book, uh, The Word for World is Forest. Oh, yeah. Um, because, and this is kind of a spoiler, so, like, I don't know, skip ahead however many seconds if you don't want to hear this. But, like, you know, the conclusion <laughs> is, for like— for a very old book, yes. <laughs> for a very old book, right. They— these two species, humans and these like chimp-like aliens, I guess, experience the world very, very differently. Think about the world very, very differently. Don't even sleep the same way. Like there's, there's, they're, they're vastly, vastly different. And then at some point, there's enough interaction that humans end up teaching the world war to mm-hmm. one of these individuals, mm-hmm. and that changes the entire other species, the chimp species culture, forever. And that's how you're like, that's how the book ends. Like you're left with this feeling of like, oh God, what did we do? Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I just don't know if I want my dog to, to understand our world. Like, and I, I guess I want to understand hers, but like at what cost? 
you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> maybe this is this is me just really enjoying difference and really enjoying my inability to fully grasp her world and her inability to fully grasp mine. I think there's beauty in that. And I just don't know. And like the kid in me is like screaming, right? Because I desperately wanted to talk to the animals when I was a kid. But now at this point, is that what I want? Like, I just really, really appreciate difference and I appreciate the unknown. And yeah, whatever we learn about animals is wonderful and great. And I would never want to stop that. But I kind of like that. I don't think we're ever going to get there. Yeah, I like that, too. I mean, that's the beginning of of really changing how we think about the world, too, is to fully understand that, like, you know, other creatures see it really differently, you know, that, yeah. that there is another possibility of another way to perceive everything. Um, so I yeah. love that. Um, are you going to be doing um, more seasons of a show about animals? Is there anything coming up? Uh, I mean, tentatively, yes. Uh, we are currently in the very beginning stages of uh, planning out season two. I can't tell you what it's about yet, but I am very excited. And I think that it like, hopefully, <laughs> if this works out, will flow really well. Um, and and we'll have like some maybe even overlapping characters, um, like overlapping sources, people that we interview, maybe. Um, in season two. So, you know, if you like season one, you might want to stick around for season Yay. two. Very cool. Well, I can't wait to see it. So where else can people find your stuff online? Yeah, I mean, mostly, honestly, in the, the podcast world these days. Uh, I used to be on TV uh, for a show called Vice News Tonight that's still on the air covering climate change. But now it's uh, Vice News Reports. Go listen to Vice News Reports. We uh, It is a general news weekly documentary style news show. And right now, if I can say this, I think my team is doing unbelievable reporting on the war in Ukraine. And I'm just so incredibly proud of their work. And last week's episode, when I heard some of the tape, it made me cry. Um, so please go check that out. Uh, I, I really, really, really am just so in awe of everybody that I work with right now. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. It was so yeah. great chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me. I got to say, I am a huge fan of both of you guys Aww. I've like <laughs> like well, read it's definitely mutual <laughs> you know I've read some of your books I'm a big I'm fan I'm pushing the so love like, button now cool. I'm just like love 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 it's true that's how I communicate with Charlie actually You've been listening to Correct Opinions on <laughs> Our Opinions Are Correct. Thank you so much for listening. And if you like what you're hearing, please consider supporting us on Patreon. We're an indie podcast. We depend on you to keep going. So you can follow, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash ouropinionsarecorrect. You can follow us on Twitter at OOACpod. Thanks so much to our producer, Veronica Simonetti. Thanks to Women's Audio Mission, where we recorded this episode. And thanks to Chris Palmer for the music. Talk to you later. If you're a patron, we'll see you on Discord. Bye! Bye.